some 1,000 years before Christ's birth. And that psalm was about Christ. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was one of the scriptures that we read in our gospel primer. And that's what Christ said on the cross when the father had forsaken him and turned, uh, basically turned his back on him so that Christ could pay the ultimate penalty for our sins. And this psalm speaks of uh, Christ, that he was scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Where it says, all who see me shall mock me, because Christ was mocked on the cross. Uh, if, you be, if you be the son of God, save yourself. Uh, that was one of the things that they said to him. He trusted in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That was one of the taunts uh, that was directed at Christ on the cross. So all of this in this psalm points to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ where he says at the bottom of that page I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and I was speaking of course his suffering on the cross Christ suffered for our sins and our sins were so costly uh, that the father had forsaken his son on the cross because God is so holy that he cannot look at the presence of sin and that's why the father did that in that time on the cross where it went dark because that was Christ atoning for our sins that shows you the darkness of our sins and what it costs uh, our savior so let us always keep in mind what our sins cost and thank God for the glorious work of Christ amen in paying that penalty because it was a debt that we couldn't pay, just like one of the songs we sang. Our measureless debt was paid in that song, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus. Uh, the cost of our sins are immeasurable. Sin is so costly that a person who does not repent of their sins and face hell as their judgment, they will face an eternal hell because that's the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin, the ultimate penalty, is the eternal punishment. That's how costly sin is that it costs a person all of eternity to pay for their sins. And that's what hell is, is a judgment against uh, sin, those who turn away from God and don't believe in him. So why is hell eternal? Because the cost of sin has an eternal cost to it that only one man paid, and that was Jesus Christ. Amen. With that being said, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask you this morning to hear my prayer according to Christ's finished work on the cross. And his mediation on my behalf as he is seated at your right hand. Lord, we want to express adoration to you this morning because you are infinitely above us and above all other things. You are God and not man. You do not have eyes of flesh. You do not see as man sees. Lord, your days are not even as the days of man. And your years are not as man's days. Lord, as heaven is high above the earth, so are your thoughts above our thoughts and your ways above our ways. Lord, all the nations of the world, all the nations that think they are mighty, all nations before you are as a drop of the bucket or the small dust of the balance. And Lord, though you take up the owls as a very little thing, they are as nothing and are counted to you less than nothing. 
Lord, we confess to you this morning, as we confessed earlier, that we are ashamed and we blush to lift up our eyes before you, Lord, for our iniquities are increased over our heads and our trespasses have gone up into the heavens. Lord, it is to us that belong shame and confusion of face because we have sinned against you. And Lord, if we justify ourselves, our own mouths shall condemn us. If we say that we are perfect, that also shall prove us to be perverse. For Lord, if you contended with us, we are not able to answer you for one of a thousand. Lord, we confess to you our weaknesses. We confess to you, Father, that we cannot face the temptation of sin on our own. So, Lord, we thank you for your help in being with us and strengthening us by your spirit. And, Father, we want to express thanksgiving to you. Because, Lord, we must stir up ourselves to praise you. And with the consideration both of the reason and of the encouragement we have to praise you, Lord, we, we have to stir up in ourselves reason to praise you. Lord, while we live, we will bless you. And we will sing praises unto you while we yet have our being. And when we have no being on earth, Lord, we hope to have a being in heaven to be doing it even better. Lord, we are here at this church gathering this morning through Jesus Christ to offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you. And Lord, we desire to do it continually. And Lord, let this be the fruit of our lips to give thanks to your name because Lord, you are worthy. Lord, your word tells us that whoever offers praise glorifies you. And Lord, we want to pre please you this morning by not being murmurers or complainers. But Father, we want to please you by giving thanks to you for all that you've done. To mention your love and kindness. Because Lord, you've done so much. You've bestowed so much on us. Materially, spiritually, physically. Lord, you've been so great to us. And Lord, we thank you for the great goodness towards this church you persevered us through 13 years of ministry you brought many people in and out of us out of our lives Lord and we we thank you this morning for persevering us in ministry persevering me and Fran as husband and wife and as pastor and pastor's wife in in, in uh, leading this church and Lord you persevered those of us who are here by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and and persevering us in our growth through the ministry of the word and through discipling one another and through fellowship and through prayer. Lord, we ask you to be merciful and to continue to bless us, to continue to cause your face to shine upon us. And Lord, give us your blessings from above. We're blessed in the beloved as believers, Lord, and continue to bless us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places by Jesus Christ. Lord, let us receive blessing from you, even the righteousness from God of our salvation. And Lord, may this prayer be extended to our brothers and sisters in Christ and other like-minded churches. 
Brother Anthony at Christian Fellowship, Brother Bob at Anderson Bible, Brother Carlton at Grace Fellowship, Brother Phil at Redeemer, Brother Cody at Iron City, Brother Justin at Mountain View, Brother Curley at First Baptist Lineville, Brother Steve at Hope Presbyterian, Brother Sylvester all the way over in Zimbabwe. I had a chance to chat with him this morning. Brother Josh Henderson down at Southside Baptist in Talladega. Lord, bless all these men and here at this church. Help us to be faithful shepherds of the word. And Lord, we ask you to continue to be glorified in all of our churches, in the praying, the singing, the reading, the preaching, the serving, and the giving that we do for one another in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, bless your word this morning as it is preached that you may bring sinners to repentance, that you may encourage the saints by means of your word. Help us, Lord, as believers to walk wisely, to walk, walk circumspectly in this wayward world, in this perverse world in which we live. Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Left my sermon notes on the table right here. Amen. We thank the Lord for the word this morning. As I always say, there's no guess as to where we are. We're in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, as we continue. I think this is our 29th sermon, sermon in the book of Ephesians. And we're continuing with walking differently, part five. Paul is talking to us as believers as they're going back to chapter four, as we have put off the old man and we're putting on the new man and we're not walking as the Gentiles walk in the vanities of their minds. And so we continue to see the directives for the believer and how we are called by the Lord to walk. And so this morning we're going to look at verses 15 through 21 where Paul tells us to walk uh, in wisdom. So we're going to look at three or, uh, overriding principles uh, this morning. The first one is going to be walking wisdom. But before we do, let's read our text. This is Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 15. And these are the words of the Lord. See then that you walk circumspectly. That's what I know the King James and New King James says. Some translations do say wisely. Or carefully. So see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, 
giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. We live in a foolish world. We live in a world full of fools. We live in a world of foolish ideologies. We live in a world of foolish, foolish worldviews. I was thinking this morning, I was kind of looking at some different news articles. And I, the thought that came to myself, I, I, I even said it out loud. I said, I said, Lord, the secular worldview is a foolish worldview. It is a worldview that offers no hope. It offers false hope. It offers a false sense of security. It is very empty and vacuous. The word vacuous means empty, like there's nothing in it, like in a vacuum. It is a vacuous worldview. It is very empty. It, it promises everything but delivers nothing. It is foolish. It is empty. But yet... Billions upon billions of people are being influenced by a secular worldview. And a secular worldview uh, at, its, at its core is a worldview that does not uh, believe in or acknowledge uh, a sovereign creator. The secular worldview teaches that man is at the center of the universe, not God. A secular worldview teaches that man, although man may be the problem, man is the solution to man's problems. The secular worldview believes and teaches that human beings are generally good people. That is a secular worldview. It sounds good to say that. It sounds very noble you know, very pious to say, I believe everybody is basically good. That's a secular worldview. And the reason why that is, is because number one, scripture tells us that there's none who does good. Jesus himself even refuted a man when someone called him good teacher. He said, why are you calling me good? There's no one good but God. But the secular world we teach that people are basically good. So what does that give people license to do? To live a life without God. Because the secular world says that you can be good without God. So that's a, that's a very empty worldview. Because if you're relying on your own goodness. You will never know how good you actually are. Because who are you measuring yourself against? The people who you think are the worst of society. So, well, yeah, I'm good to the man who raped a woman or a man who killed someone. I'm good compared to them. But there's someone gooder than you in that estimation. So how do you feel about yourself then? But that worldview that's devoid of God, devoid of, even in the general sense, a higher power or higher authority. In the secular worldview, man is the highest authority. What you think how you feel is 
what matters and what is supreme. All of that, Christian, is foolish. It leads to an empty life. It leads you down a path of despair, of despondency. It's going to lead you down a path of abuse, neglect, and all those things because you're believing a lie. And when you look at the news, especially when you look at famous people, celebrities, and all these things, when you see how their lives are when they're really honest, they believe the lie. And when they believe the lie, when they realize it, it's almost too late because, man, their, their lives are broken. They're not irretrievably broken because God can save them. But, man, they made a mess of their lives because they believe the lie. They believe the lie of the secular worldview, that you yourself are God, that you're your own God, that you don't need God. You're your own God. And that's why we see a lot of the foolishness out in the culture, because people have a broken worldview. They're believing the lie of secularism. You have men who are believing the lie of secularism, thinking it's okay to sleep around with a lot of women, that that's good, you know, that makes you an ultimate bachelor or whatever. And that's, in the culture, that's good that you do that. You got a lot of uh, famous men, celebrities that, are known to be ultimate bachelors. And the world applauds that. And you have women. The culture's being told, go get an OnlyFans account. Most of y'all probably know what OnlyFans is. You don't want to know what it is. But those who do know, if you know, you know. Tell women to go out there and get an OnlyFans account. Go out there and uh, wear a bail anything and twerk for Instagram or for TikTok. Go viral. Showing your body to only to people who are not even supposed to see how you look except for your husband. That you don't need a man. That all men are evil. All men are dogs. Toxic masculinity. That men need to be more like women than men. They believe the lie. And then they get in their 40s and 50s. And they realize how lonely they are because they believe the lies of the culture. They sleep around with a bunch of men. And I'm talking about worldly women. I'm not talking about Christian women. I'm talking about women of the world. That's what they do. They believe the lie. And then they get older. They end up lonely and bitter. Why? Because they believe the lie of secularism. They believe a foolish ideology, a foolish worldview. But the Bible offers something so much greater for us as believers. And that is what we look at this morning in this passage. May I tell y'all something? Jesus offers something so much better. Jesus offers us something that is not empty. Jesus offers us something that is fulfilling. He offers us something 
that's greater. He offers us something that is not going to leave us in despair. He offers us something that's not going to leave us in despondency. He offers us himself. And when he offers us himself, guess what he does? He changes us. He renews us. He regenerates us. He saves us. We go from being spiritually dead to being made spiritual alive by grace. We are saved through faith. And what does Christ do then? He sets us on a path of righteousness and holiness. And where does that lead to? Walking in a way that is pleasing to God. And as Christians, guess what? We're countercultural to the world. We're not to walk as the world walks, as Paul said. So looking at our passage this morning, he tells us three things to do. And we're going to look at them in order. The first one is to walk wisely. So we're going to look at three simple principles this morning. Walk wisely. Understand God's will. And be filled with the Spirit. So let's look at these three. We're, ta- we're contrasting this with the foolishness of the world. So Paul tells us in verses 15 through 17. See then that you walk wisely or circumspectly. Not as what? What, is it? what does your Bible say? Mine says not as fools. Hopefully you're reading along with me and not just listening to me. Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly or wisely, not as what? Fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are good or what? Evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand where the Lord is. We're going to focus on the first part of that verse. See then that you walk wisely or circumspectly. And this is on the heels of walking in the light from the previous verses that we looked at last week. Remember Paul said here, just to remind us, he told us back in verse 11, don't partake in the unfruitful works of darkness because he said that you were once darkness. See that in verse 8. At one time you were once darkness, but now you are what? Light. So looking at walking circumspectly, this is how it looks. Because this light was given to us, we should walk circumspectly. Circumspectly means careful. You think about just uh, Latin roots here. The, the, the Latin root circum means circle, like circumference, like looking around. And spect is where we get the word spectacles from. Like your glasses or spectacles, you're looking. So in other words, you're looking carefully. You're looking around you. You're being observant. You're being alert. Like we say in the military, keeping your head on a swivel. Always aware of your surroundings. Always aware of what is going on around you. That is walking wisely. So he says walking circumspectly. He's telling us to walk wisely. To walk carefully. People who are foolish, guess what? They're not careful with what they do. They don't think through, they don't think through the consequences of their actions or their choices. They're thinking in the moment. They're thinking with their flesh. They're not thinking wisely. 
They're not thinking about their actions affecting others. Why? Because they're foolish. But Christians, we think wisely. We are circumspect. We are reflective. We're not impulsive. Fools are impulsive. Fools don't think about circumstances. Fools just do things. Just because it seems right to do or just because it feels right to do or just because it will go viral or get someone a lot of attention, they just do it. That's what a fool does. But we walk wisely. We're walking carefully. We're walking thoughtfully. Because the pagans in Paul's day, they devoted themselves to the ancient gods. One of the ancient gods was the god Bacchus, B-A-C-C-H-U-S. And this god, uh, they, they worshiped this god by drinking and partying. And one early church father says, do not become madmen. Because this is what they were doing back then, worshiping Bacchus. They were drinking and partying and carousing. They were acting foolish. They were tossing their heads from shoulder to shoulder, appearing to be frantic. This is how they worshiped their gods. Reminds you of going to like heavy metal concerts and people are banging their heads like that. That's a form of worship and idolatry. And it's foolish because you can get a headache or get dizzy or something like that. So we're supposed to walk wisely as believers. We're supposed to be wise. And what wisdom do we have? We have God's wisdom, not the wisdom of this world. Because the wisdom of this world, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, is foolish. The wisdom of this world is foolish. So he says, do not walk. He says, walk circumspectly, walk wisely, not as fools. Why? What are we to be doing as we do that? Redeeming what? The time. This has the idea of day upon day and hour upon hour. What this means to redeem the time is that you buy up opportunities. You take advantage of the time that you have as believers. Be aware of the times. We ought to be aware of what's going on in our world. God gives us three stewardship duties. We're stewards over our time our talents, meaning our gifts that he gives everyone, and our treasures, which is our money or material possessions. Time, talent, treasure, those are the three things that God gives us stewardship over. What are we doing with our time? We have 168 hours in a week. Yes, 24 times 7, uh, Jerry is 168. We have 168 hours in a week. How are we using that time? How are we redeeming that time to God's glory? We, that's how you walk wise. We redeem the time. We don't waste time. Now, Paul's not telling us to make every moment. Well, he's not telling us to make the most of every moment. Although that is good advice. What he's telling us is to seize every opportunity for the glory of Jesus. That's what he's telling us to do in redeeming the time. It's not to make the most of time, but to make the most of the time. 
to do everything to the glory of God because that is what we're called to do anyway. Remember 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to who? The glory of God. No matter what activity it is, when you're working, you work to the glory of God. When you're raising your kids, you do that to the glory of God. How you relate to your husband or your wife, you do that to the glory of God. Where you're out in the public square, when you're shopping or whatever, you do it all to the glory of God. That is how you can redeem your time as a Christian. That's how you walk wisely. We have in mind that everything that we do, every activity that we do, every endeavor that we partake in is a way to glorify God. <coughs> you don't have to use biblical language to do that. Just do everything to God's glory. How you shop, do that to the glory of God. Don't get yourself in unnecessary debt. Amen. We do all those things to the glory of God. When you go to Bucky's like I do, use some self-restraint <laughs> in what you pick up in those aisles. All I love those brisket sandwiches. They have the best ones. Yes, they do. Amen. To the glory of God. <laughs> and they have the cleanest bathrooms, too. So that's how we redeem the time. We do everything, whether you're in school, how you do your work, how you are in class. You do it to the glory of God. That's how we redeem the time. That is wise. What do fools do? They waste time. They waste it in frivolous things and frivolous activities which don't amount to a hill of beans. <coughs> they engage in empty pursuits because they're bored. So they waste their time building a nothing burger. And then wonder why they feel so empty. Wonder why life feels so meaningless and without purpose. Why? Because you're not doing anything to anyone else's glory but yours. As I said earlier, Jesus offers something much better. You work to God's glory as a believer, you're going to feel ultimate satisfaction. Because you know, as me and my wife was talking this week, you're working for the Lord. You're doing everything for the Lord. He is the one who's going to reward you, not man. No one's going to be standing beside you on that great day. You have to stand alone and give an account for what you have done in the flesh, whether it's good or evil. That's what the scriptures say. What are you doing to the glory of God? Are you being foolish with your time? Or are you being wise with it? Are you redeeming all your time? And those areas where we fall short as believers, guess what? We confess and we repent. Lord, help me to steward all of my time to your glory. We can't be wasteful like fools are. Some people waste their whole time, their whole day away on their phones or binging uh, shows on television. It's nothing wrong with being on your phone nothing wrong with uh, binging shows on TV. Well, actually it is, but uh, it's nothing wrong with watching television or streaming service or whatever you prefer. It's nothing wrong with those things. Those are not bad activities. But the problem is they become ultimate things to people. That becomes their reason for existing. And they make those things into gods and don't even realize it. Or they take little precious time 
for God, but they take more time and energy into those pursuits. That's when you're not redeeming it well to God's glory. It don't mean that you just spend all your waking hours with the open Bible. That's not what that means. All of us do different pursuits. God gave us this whole world to enjoy. Paul says this in First Corinthians, I mean, First Timothy, the sixth chapter, that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. He's given us this earth to enjoy. He's given us nature to enjoy the earth that he created. He gave it to us to enjoy the things that he gave man, the ingenuity to create. I'm not to create, but to to make and to manufacture. Guess what? He gave it to us to enjoy. But to enjoy it to his glory. And to enjoy in a way that is natural and not inordinate. Inordinate means unnatural or too much. So we redeem the time. And why do we redeem the time? Because the days are evil. This is another reason why it is important to walk wisely. Jesus spoke of a time when he said this in Matthew 24, verses 11 through 12. He spoke of a time when many false prophets would rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness, lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And we are in those times because the days are evil. The love towards God, uh, as the old King James says, has waxed cold. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, men will become what? Lovers of themselves. Isn't that what we see in the last days? People even wear t-shirts that say, love yourself. That's foolish. You don't even know what love is. Talking about love yourself. <laughs> That's an oxymoron. Love is not about you. It is about the object of your love. When Christ loved God's love of the world, he did what? He gave his only begotten son as a sacrifice. Love gives. Love is, love is not about us. Love is not about us. Love has an object. And that object, if you're the object of your own love, you're a narcissist. You, you know, that's what you are. You're in love with yourself. And that is a very empty existence because you would never love yourself enough because you are a sinner. You are a miserable wretch. And you're just going to become more miserable and more wretched. And you're going to actually hate yourself more. Why? Because you're going to say, I'm loving myself, but I, I just don't feel better. I don't, I don't feel like I love myself enough. And you're going to keep, it's like a dog chasing his tail. You would never love yourself enough. But these days are evil and people are being told, you just need to love yourself more. You, you can't love others until you love yourself first. That's one of the biggest lies that people believe. You would never love yourself enough. You have someone, as we read this morning, who loves you like no one else can. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. No one will ever love you more or better than Christ. You can't love yourself more than Christ loves you. 
But the days are evil, and that's what people are being told. That's why we have to walk wisely. That's why we have to redeem the time, because the days are evil. The world is pushing all this evil on us. And unfortunately, you have some Christians who are acquiescing to that. But friends, it is empty. Amen? So the days are evil. So he says, therefore, having said all this, don't be unwise. <laughs> Do not be unwise. The next principle says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is what real wisdom looks like. Understanding God's will. You want to see a person who's wise? See if they know God's will. What is God's will? That you glorify him. I say it all the time. The chief end of man is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's God's will for your life. So <clears throat> the problem in our world is you have a lot of people who are looking for purpose. What's my purpose in this world? What's my they, they spend all their lives talking about their purpose like they don't know their purpose. They don't know why they're here. It's not a secret. Genesis 1 tells us, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. What does it mean? I explain it all the time, but it always bears explaining every time I mention it. What does it mean that we are image bearers of God? What does it mean that we're made in God's image? Image comes, uh, begs uh, the word mirror. We are to mirror and image God to the world. That's what we were created to do. Not to be God, but to mirror and image God to the world. We are the only uh, beings in creation who are made in God's image. Animals not, plants are not, you know, no other part of the created world. Rivers and the earth is not God, uh, despite what the radical environmentalists say, saying Mother Earth and all that garbage. Nature is not God. No, Mother Nature is pagan. Um... Mother Earth is pagan. But we are made in God's image. We are made, we were created to mirror and image God. But the fall happened. In Genesis 3, as is recorded. And ever since that point, man has sought to become God. As opposed to mirroring and imaging God to the world, man wanted the glory to be on himself. And what instead and what happened over the consequent uh, thousands of years since then is that instead of us mirroring and imaging God to the world, man has sought to make God into his image. That's what man has sought to do. We have sought to make God into who we think he should be. Even to the point where we made ourselves God. But God's will for us is to glorify him. 
That is your life's purpose. Every single person who hears this. Everyone out there in the world. Who's searching for purpose. People are ruining their lives. Searching for a purpose. Your purpose is not to be famous. Your purpose is not to go viral on TikTok. Your purpose is not to mutilate your bodies. By trying to be the opposite uh, sex. Your purpose is not to destroy God's creation mandate by um, trying to have two men and two women to be together. That's not your purpose. That's, that goes against God's design. Your purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And when you glorify him, you glorify him as God. As the creator, as the, as the sovereign, the one who made you, the one who created you to worship him and him alone as God. Not to have any other gods before him, as the first commandment says. I am the Lord thy God. That is what God told Israel in Exodus the 20th chapter. I am the Lord thy God. He is the Lord, and he only should be worshipped. He told them, you should have no other gods before me. So we glorify God as God. That's wise. Understanding that will, it's not complicated. So Paul tells us we walk wisely and in doing that we want to understand the will of the Lord is. So again the will of the Lord is to do not, not to do the will of the Lord is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the last one is to be filled with the spirit. This is what we're going to spend the rest of our time together next 15 minutes or so. He says in verse 18. No, I'm sorry. I skipped over one. My bad. Do not be drunk with wine. Yes, same thing. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with who? The spirit, not what, but who? Do not be drunk with wine. I'm not going to belabor that, but to, just to say this. <clears throat> The Bible does not forbid drinking alcohol. But the Bible does forbid drunkenness. The problem is that um, many people don't know how to control the alcohol usage. Even well-meaning Christians. You know, some, I know some people that are like, just have a glass of wine. I don't know how wine tastes. I never had it. It looks nasty to me. It's not brown like sweet tea. Man, I had some great sweet tea at Billy Bob's yesterday. That tea was, whew. But anyway, um, it, it didn't look brown like sweet tea, so I don't want it. But anyway, you know, some people like have a glass of wine with dinner or whatever. That's, that's, that's fine. But if a glass of wine gets you drunk, then don't drink it. Okay? Some people... 
make have a few beers. I mean, you, you have to drink more than one, uh, or two. Then why are you drinking more than one or two so you can get drunk or tipsy or to get right? That's drunkenness. Can't say amen, say ouch. But that's drunkenness. I need to get right. I didn't work. I didn't work. Work hard all week. I deserve to knock back a few. You going to Map Cole? Well, where I live, Map Cole, on Friday evening, buddy. We going to that beer cooler. Left and right, coming out with cases. Like, man, they about to get lit this weekend. You know. But the thing is about drunkenness. We're gonna talk about why drunkenness is 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 uh is bad, but. The Bible says that as believers, we're not to be drunk with wine. And back then they had they didn't have uh, beer back then they or uh, wine, and that was like real wine back then. Um, they said, "Yeah, Jesus drank wine. He did, but he didn't get drunk." I mean, seriously, come on. But anyway, being wise means not. Being drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. So, Paul is laying out a contrast between being filled with the Spirit and being drunk with wine. And we must understand the scriptures condemn drunkenness without reservation. Without reservation. But the Bible condemns drunkenness. Now, he says, which is dissipation. What does dissipation mean? Dissipation means uh, a waste of resources in the Greek. In modern slang, dissipation means getting wasted. Well, as we say back when I was in the military, getting bent. Where you're so drunk, you're like bent, like you're like bent over. You're sitting at the club, bent over, you know, sitting in the chair with your faces on the table. You 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 know, you're so drunk, you can't even sit up straight. You you're bent. That's what we used to call it back in the day. Now people say wasted or white girl wasted or white boy wasted or or whatever. So it means to be wasted. It, it, it points to the waste, the wastefulness and destruction of property, relationships, and life that often goes with drunkenness. This is what drunkenness does. It messes up your life. It messes up relationships. And it messes up property. When do you see people at their worst? When they're what? Drunk. And as Jamie Foxx saying, they blame it on the alcohol. That's what that's what that's what it does. It it it, it messes up relationships. I know wives that have husbands that have drinking problems. And the wives don't like it. Because they know what happens when their husbands get get drunk. I couldn't imagine kissing them because the uh, alcohol breath is nasty. 
But do you have wives who have husbands that they get drunk and they don't they don't like it? Because they don't treat them well. Why? Because they are intoxicated. They are under the influence. And the word dissipation, um, Luke used this in, in Luke 15 and 13 about the prodigal son, about the way the prodigal son wastefully spent his inheritance on, you know, loose living. So dissipation means being out of control. Because guess what? Guess what controls you when you're drunk? The alcohol does. Is that wise? No, that's foolish. Remember, we're talking about walking wisely, understanding God's will. When you're walking wisely, you're not drunk. And man, you know, the worst thing for me to see is a drunk woman. It's like even worse. I mean, a man being drunk is, is, is bad enough. But when girls are drunk, like little college girls or grown women, Women have a lower alcohol tolerance than men do because they're smaller. Their bodies are smaller. A drunk woman is like the worst thing to see. It's like degrading. You have college girls all the time, man. They just drinking, drinking it up. Fraternity girls are having all these parties. They're drinking at games and just looking silly, look like silly women. It's ungodly and, and immodest. And, 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 and what do some of these knucklehead boys do? They take advantage of that. Next thing you know, they're getting raped. They're getting violated. And that's sad that it happens. Not that they deserved it because they don't. But look at the kind of danger that you're putting yourself into by getting drunk. You lose all your inhibitions. You are under. That's why there's a charge called driving under the influence. Because alcohol influences you. And there's some biblical passages also besides this one that tells us about drunkenness. I'll read one of them for you. Proverbs 20 and 1. The writer says, wine is a mocker. Listen to this. Wine, this is Proverbs 20 and 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. Excuse me. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. This is the wisdom of scripture. This is God's wisdom. This is how we as believers are to walk. It leads you astray. Then you wake up the next morning with a banging headache. Apologizing to people that you've hurt. I'm sorry, man. I was drunk. I was out of my mind. You could be late for work. You could have said something while you were drunk that was very hurtful to someone and not even remember it the next day. That shows you how bad it is to get drunk. A lot of people don't even remember what happened. Some people black out. 
That's foolish. Look at what the scripture says here in Proverbs 23. Begin at verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And people, this is written thousands of years ago. This is the wisdom of God. What did he say? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look upon the wine when it is red. When it sparkles in the cup. When it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent. And stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. And your heart will utter perverse things. Lord if this is not true. This is God's word. Isn't he right? It's God. You got to agree with him. Yes. You would be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Or like the one who lies at the top of the mast saying. They have struck me. But I was not hurt. They have beaten me. But I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? That's what the Bible says about drunkenness. But what does Paul, through the Spirit's inspiration, tell us? Do not be drunk with wine as is dissipation. This was back in 2010. I'm sure it's even worse now. 88,000 people died of alcohol-related causes. Now, that was back in 2010. That was 13 years ago. I'm sure it's probably over 100,000 now. And as you know, alcohol may become physically addictive. And so am I prone to this addiction. But God doesn't call this addiction. He calls it being enslaved to sin because that's what addiction is. This is not Addiction is a secular psychological term. It's not addiction. It is enslavement to sin. Because if you label alcoholism, alcoholism is classified as a disease, but that's, that's very uh, weak and it's not, it's not good because if you label alcoholism as only a disease, it's not biblical. The Bible calls it drunkenness, not alcoholism. It calls it drunkenness. It is a deed of the flesh. Some people may say it's wrong to label alcoholism as sin. But that's actually an act of mercy. The reason why? Because if it's a disease. You may be without hope. Because what? It's a disease. That's a hopeless diagnosis. But if it is a sin for which you are responsible, which you are. The alcohol didn't make you make you drink it. The Bible offers a remedy for sin. Which includes being born again. And which includes being filled with 
the spirit. When you're filled with the spirit, guess what? You're not going to be an alcoholic. If you're filled with the spirit, you're not going to be an alcoholic. You're not going to be given to drunkenness. Why? Because you're filled with the spirit. You're not going to be filled with the spirit and be a drug addict. And all the harms that come with that enslavement to sin. The harm that you're causing yourself to your body when your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The harm that you're causing to your family, your loved ones, your children, your wife, your employer. Because it's going to cause problems with them, right? If you have that enslavement to sin. So someone who is spirit-filled does not do these things. So Paul tells us, instead of being drunk with wine, be filled with the spirit. So what Paul is doing here, he's contrasting the effect of the Holy Spirit with the state of drunkenness. Think about this. Alcohol is a depressant. I remember learning about this in school, way back in elementary school, when uh, we would have a police officer to come to the school and they had this little board that, um, you know, folded out. They don't even do this in schools anymore. We talked about barbiturates and amphetamines and depressants and stimulants. We learned all about that stuff way back in the 70s when I was in elementary school. They don't teach that now to students. You know, some of the drugs, even those drugs that we learned back then are still prevalent, just not as much as like fentanyl and all that. So you got to almost change it now because there's so many different drugs out there. You notice how worse sin gets, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. They come up with even more ways to, to you know, <laughs> to get people enslaved. But alcohol is a depressant. It depresses your brain. That's why you... You, you become more lethargic. Your speech gets slurred because it depresses your brain function. Alcohol is a depressant. It loosens people because it depresses their self-control. It depresses their wisdom. It depresses their balance and their judgment. You know the meme or the the stereotype of the drunk man stumbling why because his nervous system has been depressed walk in the house drunk can't find their bedroom fall asleep on the couch or on the floor or in the bathtub while the children and the wife say oh there's dad again It depresses, and it's depressing just thinking about it. So he says, be filled with the Spirit instead. The Holy Spirit is the exact opposite effect. The Holy Spirit is a stimulant. The Holy Spirit moves in every aspect of our being as believers. The Holy Spirit empowers us to, to live for something greater than a night out with the boys or the girls. 
than a night out getting drunk. The Holy Spirit offers something so much better, so much more glorious. And he moves in every aspect of our lives. And this is a great contrast that Paul gives us that is so glorious. And, and what does it look like? So to be filled with the Spirit, number one, is to live with every conscious area of our life yielded to the Spirit's control. <clears throat> we ask the Lord. We ask God, the Holy Spirit, Lord, take control, have control over all my life, all my decisions, everything I do, everything I say. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, to, the Spirit having total control over us. It also means to live with the word of God permeating every area of our life. Every area of our life. And it also involves a deepening relationship with God through the spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to God. The Holy Spirit leads us to love God more, to cherish God more, to learn about God more. The late theologian Charles Moule, M-O-U-L-E, said this. He says, we find it here embedded amongst precepts, laying down the great laws of self-control. And it comes just before the special directions which Paul gives for the quiet sanctities of the Christian home. But then all the while, it is a thing supernatural. It is a state of man which is holy unattainable by training by reasoning by human wish or will it is nothing less than God in command and in control of man's whole life flowing everywhere into it that he may flow fully and freely out of it and it affects everything around it he was talking about life uh, led by the spirit it is nothing less than God's command and control of our whole life that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to have God in total control. We want God in control of everything else except for our life. Amen. We want to be in control of our life. God, you can take everything else. That's, a, that's basically what we say sometimes in our actions. Lord, I got this. I, 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 can, I can control. Because you have some people who are control freaks. You have to be in control of everything. And then when things are made a mess, they try to get even more control because they made a mess and they got to try to clean it up. <laughs> and they just try to clean it up. They're trying to clean it up by doing what? Being in, in control. So let's do the math. You want to be in control. And as you're in control, you make a mess of everything. So in order to clean up your mess, you got to be in control to clean up your mess. But as you clean up your mess, being in control, guess what? You're going to make a bigger mess. And then you're going to try to be in control of putting out two messes. And you're going to make a mess of those two. And then you have three messes on your hand. And it's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Why? Because you 
are trying to be in control. God is in control of every aspect of our life. We have to yield to the Spirit's influence in our life. Every believer is filled with the Spirit. Every believer is. We're all filled with the Spirit. We're all Spirit-filled. We don't need a baptism of the Spirit. Every believer is, is filled with the Spirit upon salvation. The moment we're saved, guess what? We have the Holy Spirit. We don't catch the Holy Spirit like people in the holiness church say, man, I caught, the Holy, I caught the Spirit last night at church. No. Either you have the Spirit or you don't. You don't catch it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just laughing about back in the day. People, you know, I went to those holiness churches. People saying they caught the Holy Spirit. No, you didn't catch it. We're all filled with the Spirit when we're saved. Amen. Lastly, closing this up. As we're filled with the Spirit, we address one another in what? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And we do what? Give thanks for all things, and we submit to one another. So how does this all look? A spirit-filled life leads to a life of singing and praise to God. You know, I talk about this on Sunday mornings when we're singing the songs. We're thinking about what we're singing. We're thinking about who we are singing to. John MacArthur says this in his commentary on this verse, and this is so good. He said, the first consequence of the spirit-filled life that Paul mentions was not mountain-moving faith, an ecstatic spiritual experience, dynamic speaking ability, or any other such thing. It was simply a heart that sings. And he continues, joyful, exuberant, heartfelt singing is one evidence that a church is spirit-filled. Lifeless, listless, apathetic, quote, worship is not worship at all. It is a sinful disregard of the majesty and grace of our great God and it shows that we are not under the control of his spirit who produces overflowing joy in his people. It reveals that we are not captured by God's abundant grace and we are not thankful for his many blessings to us. So that spirit led life leads to exuberant singing of psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. We sing them to each other as we sing to who? God. Many who can't sing a beautiful medley with their voice can make beautiful medleys in their heart. Because singing comes from where? It comes from our heart in church. If our heart is full of the spirit, guess what? It's going to show in how we sing to God. So we sing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual hearts, making melody in our hearts to the Lord because that is where it starts it starts in our hearts the most important place for us to have a melody unto God is in our heart because what's in the heart is going to come out Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks 
if we have a melody to the Lord in our heart, guess what? It's going to come out in our singing. And also, we give thanks always for all things. A spirit-led life is a thankful life. The one who is filled with the spirit will also be filled with thanksgiving. A complaining heart and the Holy Spirit just cannot go together. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have things to complain about. It's not what that means. But a complaining heart. That means you're always complaining about stuff. You always have complaints in your heart. You're always complaining to people. Y'all know people like that? Prayerfully, none of you are like that. But if you know people like that, you know that when they come around, do you want to hear them? You want to find something else to do? You want to be somewhere? Oh, boy, here they, here they come again. They about to start complaining to me. Let me find something. Let me busy myself with doing something. If you see them call on the phone, you hit that red X button. Oh, I, I, I ain't got time to hit them right now. You know, They always call me complaining. I don't, I, I don't want to hear from them right now. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them later. And later never comes, you know. Hey, uh, didn't you see my missed call? Yeah, I was. Didn't we make up a lie, you know. You can't say amen, say ouch, you know. But, you know, because no one likes a person who's always what? Complaining, like, always. Like, man, are you thankful for anything? Yeah, I'm thankful for the fact that I get to complain. <laughs> but, no, as believers, we are spirit-filled. We give thanks to God. We give thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon says this, and I'm going to end it right here. Every hour, yes, every moment has brought a favor upon its wings. Look downward and give thanks, for you are saved from hell. Look on the right hand and give thanks, for you are enriched with gracious gifts. Look on the left hand and give thanks, for you are shielded from deadly ills. Look above you and give thanks, for heaven awaits you. This is how being filled with the Spirit looks. Being filled with the Spirit is a way that we as believers bought wisely. We ought to walk wisely. And look at our applications here. I put three of them up here. We must truly stay alert. And be careful to understand and carry out the will of the Lord. We're not to meander carelessly through life. But we're to be alert. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5, to be alert, to be sober. For your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He walks the earth to and fro, seeking whom he may destroy. He tells us to be sober, be vigilant, be wise, be truly alert, be careful. Our aim and our goal and our great longing should be to be filled with the Spirit. That means be under the Spirit's control every day. <laughs> Nobody stays full of the Spirit all the time. No one is always totally joyful and submissive to God. But our aim and our goal and our great longing should be to be filled with the Spirit. We're not going to always be on 10. 
But our longing should be, our goal should be, our aim should be to live that spirit-filled life at all times. And then lastly, as spirit-filled believers, we ought to love God first and love each other. That goes with the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. As believers, we have to have a proper love of God first, which means a worshipful love of God. And then we'll be able to love each other as believers, as spirit-filled believers. That is what we do. Spirit-filled believers love God and love each other. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to walk wisely, to know your will, and to be filled with the Spirit, to live Spirit-filled lives. Help us to live wisely in the midst of this crooked and perverse world, this wicked world, this evil world, and this evil day. Help us, Lord, to draw strength from your word, to draw strength from the fellowship of the saints with each other, to draw strength from you through your spirit. Help us to always look to you, Lord, to turn our eyes to you. Because, Lord, we know that you will hold us fast. And because of that, you love us. Lord, I pray that you use this sermon to encourage the faithful, the faithful saints in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to convict sinners. Lord, they're missing out on such a great salvation. Your word tells us, how can you neglect so great a salvation? Lord, I plead for unbelievers to hear this message, to be convicted, to repent, to turn to Christ and be saved. It's such a glorious life that awaits those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust you to do it, Lord. We trust you to save, to bring people into your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.